Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, June 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The Pentagon Papers whistleblower dies. Japan passes sweeping changes to its sex crime laws. Military League suspect Jack Tashira is indicted on six felony charges. Chinese hackers are accused of breaching hundreds of global networks. An African peacekeeping mission visits Ukraine. Canada's Supreme Court upholds a migrant pact with the U.S. Former Mayor Bill de Blasio is ordered to repay New York City $500,000. Texas shuts down diversity offices at public universities. The U.K.'s ex-police watchdog chief is charged with rape. And a deadly collision kills 15 in Manitoba, Canada. In our top story, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg dies at 92. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, Breitbart, and New York Times. Former U.S. military analyst and leaker of the 1971 Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, died at his home in Kensington, California, on Friday of pancreatic cancer. He was 92 years old. The Pentagon Papers consisted of 7,000 government documents revealing deceptions by consecutive presidents who exceeded their authority, sidestepped Congress, and misled the American public regarding the Vietnam War. Following the leak, the New York Times began releasing excerpts of the documents until former President Richard Nixon's administration acquired a court injunction, preventing it from continuing. However, as portrayed in the 2017 film The Post, the Washington Post picked up where the Times left off. Ellsberg was charged in federal court in 1971 on charges of theft, espionage, and conspiracy, among others. But before a verdict could be made, the judge dismissed the case, revealing he was offered the FBI director position by one of Nixon's aides. It was also revealed that the government ordered Ellsberg's office to be burglarized. He joined the Marines in 1954, though saw no action, earned a doctorate from Harvard, joined the RAND Corporation, and took part in Washington's responses to the Cuban Missile Crisis and North Vietnamese attacks on U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin. His family said he died peacefully among loved ones, adding that Daniel was a seeker of truth and a patriotic truth-teller, an anti-war activist, a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, a dear friend to many, and an inspiration to countless more. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from The Intercept. Daniel Ellsberg exposed the dirty truth behind the deceitful nature of the U.S. military and the unnecessary psychological toll it has taken on American soldiers for decades. Though he burst through the military-industrial complex's bubble in 1971, he continued to spend a lifetime warning the public about the dangers of journalists not speaking truth to power. He represented the best of America through his unwavering courage to hold its leaders to account. Though the Vietnam War is over, these lessons are still applicable today. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from New York Times. In leaking the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg not only undermined his nation's military and his personal oath to secrecy, but he proved that the American public was not as radically anti-war as he was. Even in the wake of their release, anti-war presidential candidate George McGovern was obliterated by his opponent, and opinion polls showed Americans were not in favor of a quick withdrawal from Vietnam. Is it truly pro-democracy to undermine the elected Congress and president with whom their electors gave sole authority over military decisions? 
whatever you think about Daniel Ellsberg, I mean, his his biography reads like something out of Forrest Gump. He was at every historical event that happened, basically. It's amazing. Yeah, he and Brian Williams. It's amazing. Those two were always, <laughs> they didn't miss a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Although they said he, they said uh, Daniel Ellsberg didn't see action. Brian oh. Williams, of course, did. <laughs> of so, course he did. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Our next story, Japan raises its age of consent from 13 to 16. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Japan Times, CNA, Bloomberg, Washington Post, The Telegraph, and BBC News. Japanese lawmakers passed key reforms to sex crime legislation on Friday and raised the country's age of consent from 13 to 16 years old. The age of consent in Japan, the lowest among G7 countries, had been unchanged since 1907, with children aged 13 and above deemed capable of consent. The new age of consent matches that of Britain and is higher than France's, 15, Germany's, 14, and China's, also 14. In addition, the definition of rape was broadened to non-consensual sexual intercourse from forced sexual intercourse. The law also made photo voyeurism secretly taking, distributing, and possessing sexually explicit photos without consent, and online grooming of children illegal. Under the new legislation, people who use intimidation, seduction, or money to force children under 16 to have sexual encounters will be imprisoned for a year or fined 500,000 yen, which is 3,500 American dollars. Following Friday's vote, Japan has now identified a range of sexual offenses that could be criminally punished, including sex with victims incapacitated due to the influence of alcohol or drugs. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from BBC News. The much-needed long-overdue overhaul of Japan's laws on sex crimes, especially redefining rape and raising the age of sexual consent to 16, is a big step forward. The reforms send a message to the country's male-dominated society that sexual violence against children is unacceptable. Also, the legislation will likely spur discussions around century-old ideas of sex and sexual consent. And Narrative B is brought to us by Unheard. While the changes are welcomed, ensuring greater protection of children in Japan needs more than enacted reforms. Because of stigma and shame, sexual assault victims are often reluctant to come forward, and those who do gather the courage often receive threats and nasty comments. More efforts, such as ending the culture of impunity, are required for the laws to be embedded in society. In our next story, the military leaker Teixeira is indicted on six felony charges. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, ABC News, Fox News, BBC News, and the New York Times. Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old U.S. Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified military documents onto the social media platform Discord, was indicted by a federal grand jury in Boston on Thursday on six federal charges, including retaining and transmitting sensitive national defense information. Each charge carries a potential sentence of up to 10 years in prison, up to three years of supervised release, and a fine of up to $250,000. The charges are in addition to the two counts filed by prosecutors after his arrest in April. Teixeira was arrested on April 13th for leaking information about secret assessments of Russia's war in Ukraine, the capabilities and geopolitical interests of other nations, and other national security issues in a chat room on Discord. Though Teixeira's lawyer argued that he cooperated with the investigation and did not intend for the classified information to be widely disseminated, 
He was ordered to remain in custody after prosecutors alleged he was a flight risk last month. The DOJ also said Teixeira had a history of making violent and racist threats and had access to an arsenal of weapons in arguing against his release. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. Teixeira is an obvious threat to U.S. national security and should be treated as such by prosecutors. He's a traitorous leaker of classified information who harbors racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic views. His online history exemplifies perfectly the growing white nationalist movement that is a danger to the U.S. on the world stage. And the Western Journal brings us the establishment critical narrative. Never mind Teixeira. The focus should be on the vital information he released, which shows how the Biden administration is making America and its allies weaker and keeping the U.S. in indefinite forever wars. This is another case of elites solidifying power by forcing average citizens to remain forever fearful of external enemies. Chinese hackers breached hundreds of networks globally. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, TechCrunch, Voice of America, ABC News, Spectrum Local News, and Barron's. On Thursday, cybersecurity firm Mandiant claimed in an emailed statement that Chinese hackers, believed to be state-supported, have broken into the networks of hundreds of public and private sector organizations globally. Mandiant, which was hired by Barracuda Networks, concluded that a security flaw in the company's email security gear was exploited to compromise hundreds of companies and organizations. Mandiant, owned by Google, stated with high confidence that such activity began as early as October, with a third of targeted groups having used the email security appliance being government agencies. According to Mandiant's chief technical officer, Charles Carmackel, this is the most severe breach allegedly conducted by a China nexus threat actor since the mass exploitation of Microsoft Exchange in 2021. Of the organizations targeted, 55% were from the Americas, 22% from Asia-Pacific, and 24% from other regions. Barracuda stated Thursday that they believed approximately 5% of its active email security gateway appliances showed evidence of potential compromise adding that it would provide replacement appliances at no cost. When asked for comment on the matter, the U.S. White House reaffirmed an alert made last week by the FBI and the federal government's cybersecurity agency regarding current methods to mitigate potential threats. Those are the facts, and our first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from The Hill. Public-private collaboration is essential for the U.S. to fight off rapidly evolving cybersecurity threats from the likes of China, North Korea, Russia, and Iran. Minimum cybersecurity standards across the sectors must be developed, alongside an acceptance that the issue will remain a continuous conflict and evolution of danger and defense. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. The U.S. is projecting its own crimes onto China as it uses the veil of national interest to conduct surveillance and attack the rest of the world. These types of accusations are nothing more than an excuse to justify Washington's flagrant sanctions on Chinese and other foreign tech companies with the intent of maintaining its global dominance. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 15% chance of a U.S.-China war before the year 2035. Man, if you're a uh, secure email server company like this Barracuda Networks, this is probably about the worst thing that could possibly happen to your <laughs> yeah. business, right? Right. Yeah, yeah this is... Uh... <laughs> Explosions in Kiev as African leaders visit Ukraine on a peacekeeping mission. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, Ukranska Pravda, Al Jazeera, African Insider, and BBC News. 
Explosions were reported in the Ukrainian capital as a delegation of African leaders made their way to Kyiv on a peacekeeping mission on Friday. The delegation, which was led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and included senior officials from Egypt, Senegal, Uganda, Zambia, and the Republic of Congo, were paying their respects at a church in the Kyiv outskirts of Bucha when air raid sirens in the capital began to blare. Ukraine's Air Force later said that Russia launched a total of 12 missiles and two reconnaissance drones over the country as a whole, further claiming that all 14 aerial vehicles were shot down by air defenses. However, in the wider Kyiv region, there were reports of damage and an unspecified number of injured in at least one of the strike locations. Private houses have been damaged as a result of a Russian missile strike in one of the districts of Kyiv Oblast, said Andrei Nebyatov, head of national police in the Kyiv region. Quote, a fire has broken out. There are casualties. Meanwhile, in a statement, Vincent Maguena, presidential spokesman for Ramaphosa, didn't mention the attacks on Kyiv, simply stating that the peace mission is proceeding well and as planned, but seemed to be more concerned over a diplomatic row that's erupted with Poland over the past day. On Thursday, as Ramaphosa arrived in Poland on his way to Ukraine, a separate charter flight carrying members of his Presidential Protection Service, or PPS, and South African journalists was effectively impounded by Polish authorities who did not let the passengers disembark the plane. As the standoff continued into Friday, General Wally Rode, head of the protection detail, accused Polish authorities of sabotage and racism, further claiming that a female member of the team was strip-searched by Polish officials. According to an airport spokesman, the aircraft will be held at Warsaw's Chopin Airport until Sunday, meaning those on board will be unable to join the delegation in St. Petersburg on Saturday as hoped, as the African leaders travel to Russia for the second leg of their peace mission. Some passengers have begun disembarking and heading to a hotel. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the website of the Republic of Poland. The South African charter plane was stopped as the country's representatives failed to comply with the standard entry procedures. These violations included bringing in dangerous cargo that the South African delegation didn't have the right paperwork for, as well as the presence of officials who weren't reported to Polish officials before entry. The establishment critical narrative coming from African Insider. This is an unacceptable move from Polish authorities. They are not only sabotaging the South African leader's security detail, this is racist behavior. Further still, Polish authorities also needlessly strip-searched a female member of the team. And the forecasting community at Metaculus predicts that there is a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. Canada's High Court upholds an immigration pact with the U.S. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Politico, BBC News, and The Guardian. The Canadian Supreme Court on Friday upheld the 2002 Safe Third Country Agreement, or STCA, an immigration pact with the U.S. that says asylum seekers must apply in the first country they arrive in. Those who reach the U.S. first but cross the border are returned to the U.S. The federal court had found the agreement unconstitutional in 2020, ruling it denied migrants' right to life, liberty, and security by sending them back to the U.S., where they're often detained in what it said is solitary confinement or unsafe conditions. The Canadian government appealed the ruling, bringing the argument, led by the Canadian Council of Refugees, Amnesty International Canada, and the Canadian Council of Churches, alongside eight other plaintiffs, to the Supreme Court in October. The pact initially applied to only land-based ports of entry, but not irregular or unofficial crossings, resulting in tens of thousands of illegal crossings into Canada in recent years. In March, President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau amended it to include the entire border. 
Since 2017 and before the March Amendment, enough migrants crossed from the U.S. into Canada via Roxham Road outside Champlain, New York, that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police staffed a reception center to process them. The case will now be sent back to the lower federal courts for consideration. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We'll begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the Supreme Court of Canada. While the court did agree that some migrants in the U.S. face risks of detention and refoulement upon their expulsion from Canada, it also cited Canada's ability to retain asylum seekers if they could prove potential harsh treatment in the U.S. This decision abides by both the STCA and the Constitution, as it upholds the mutually agreed-upon treaty and considers the possibility of exceptional asylum cases. And Amnesty International Canada brings us the establishment critical narrative. Not only does the STCA force vulnerable refugees back into the U.S. where they will be treated inhumanely, but it gives them no choice but to make dangerous treks across the border to avoid detainment and expulsion. Every refugee has the right to claim asylum in Canada, no matter how they arrived, meaning this ruling blatantly violates international law and basic human dignity. The Postmillennial gives us our final spin for this story, it's Narrative C, and it says both conservative and liberal Canadians believe the STCA is flawed, but for drastically different reasons. While the right wants to avoid the caravans of migrants the U.S. faces at its southern border, the left thinks everybody should be welcome for any reason. The STCA has been a mess since its implementation, the extent of which is proven by the left and right actually agreeing. Former Mayor de Blasio has been ordered to repay New York City almost $500,000. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, The Hill, CBS, and Daily Mail. New York City's Conflicts of Interest Board, or COIB, said Thursday, former Mayor Bill de Blasio must repay the city nearly $500,000 for using city funds to pay for security during his failed 2019 presidential campaign after he violated conflict of interest laws. De Blasio, whose two terms as mayor ended in 2021, used city funds to pay members of the NYPD, racking up more than $319,000 in travel costs. The board also fined him $155,000 for misusing resources and disregarding the board's advice. De Blasio started his bid for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination in May of 2019 and used city funds to pay for a security detail on 31 out-of-state trips. He ended his campaign in September of 2019 after failing to reach 1% in the polls. The record-breaking fine from the COIB was levied not long after a report from the Department of Investigation found de Blasio misused security details even when he was in New York, sending personnel on errands and using them to transport friends and family. De Blasio, who has 30 days to pay the penalty, is appealing the COIB decision. All right, Narrative A comes from the New York Times. De Blasio is rightfully being held accountable. His term as mayor was littered with ethics questions and investigations as he continually pushed the limits of his fundraising methods into murky territory. He blatantly disregarded the board's advice in this case, and his punishment should be a lesson to him and all politicians. And the Gothamist is giving us Narrative B. This discipline doesn't teach politicians a lesson. It recklessly and arbitrarily discourages them from taking necessary safety precautions and adhering to security guidance from law enforcement. Elected officials are the target of an unprecedented number of threats of violence in our hyper-partisan times. 
and they shouldn't be discouraged from spending what's necessary on protection. Tell you what, it's uh, very easy to abuse uh, privileges that are given to you. In college, I had a uh, van driving job. I drove, you know, for, for, for the school, I drove a van bringing students around the city who were tutoring at, you know, schools in town or, or whatever. And at some point, I started giving my friends rides. Eventually, they found out, and then I was just fired. So, oh, wow. Me and de Blasio, same boat. Yep. No good deed goes unpunished, right? I mean, you <laughs> give one person a ride and then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's a slippery slope. You know, you do it one is. thing and then I'm, I'm guilty of it too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Public universities in Texas to shutter their diversity offices. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, NBC, and CNN. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed into law Bill SB 17 that will ban diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and initiatives across public colleges in the state beginning in January 2024. It will also ban activities that seek to promote certain groups of people over others based on race, ethnicity, or gender. It will further mandate officials to conduct biennial studies through 2029 on the impact of the law on students broken down by race, including examining rates of application, acceptance, matriculation, retention, graduation, and grade point averages. The bill, which does not restrict academic instruction related to race and diversity, and also makes an exception for equity measures required by a court order or federal law, also bans requiring students and employees to disclose their race, color, ethnicity, or national origin, unless the disclosure is needed for a demographic data purpose. Governor Abbott on Tuesday also signed into law a bill regarding professor tenures, which will make it easier for universities to dismiss underperforming professors and will increase the frequency and rigor of tenure review. This comes as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last month signed legislation to defund diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at public colleges, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum signed a ban on mandatory training for students and employees on so-called divisive concepts, including race. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from Real Clear Politics. Diversity, equity, and inclusion programs aren't aimed at teaching inclusivity, but rather sowing division by putting non-whites in the, quote, victim category and whites in the victimizer box. As a growing number of whites begin to push back, proponents of these programs claim it's proof of their racist white identitarianism. Until the U.S. decides to rid its educational and corporate institutions of this toxic ideology, the racial division will only worsen. It's time to return to a colorblind society. Contrast that with the left narrative from Huffington Post. There was never a colorblind America for Republicans to bring the country back to. People of color have only recently been granted access to these institutions, and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are a way to ensure the still overwhelmingly majority white population doesn't forget what it took to achieve the gains in civil rights we currently enjoy. These laws are attempts at whitewashing history so they can free themselves from culpability at the very least and further hold down historically marginalized communities at worst. In our next story, a former United Kingdom police watchdog chief is charged with rape. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, BBC News, The Guardian, Sky News, The Evening Standard, and Al Jazeera. Michael Lockwood, the former UK police watchdog director general, was charged on Friday with six counts of indecent assault and three counts of rape against a girl under the age of 16 following an investigation by Humberside Police. He is reportedly due to appear at Hull Magistrate's Court on June 28th, with the head of the Special Crime Division, 
At the Crown Prosecution Service, or CPS, Rosemary Ainsley stressing that Lockwood is entitled to a fair trial. His lawyer stated that the defendant strenuously denies the allegations under the Sexual Offenses Act of 1956, claiming that Lockwood would strongly defend his position and continue to cooperate with the proceedings. The 64-year-old stepped down as the chief of the Independent Office for Police Conduct, or IOPC, last December after police probes into offenses he allegedly committed between October of 1985 and March of 1986 came to light. Lockwood was made head of the IOPC upon its creation in 2018 as the body replaced the Independent Police Complaints Commission. Previously, he had headed a government task force concerning the Grenfell Tower disaster and served as chief executive of London's Harrow Council. Over the past five years, 500 UK police officers have been reported for sexual assault, of which 10 have been convicted, and more than 300 for rape, according to a study published on Thursday by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Channel 5 Broadcaster. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. We have an establishment critical narrative from Elle magazine. The UK police force has a serious problem, as officers are often revealed to be criminals living in plain sight. While the idea that such horrible events are only committed by a few bad apples, people forget that a few bad apples, regardless, ruin the bunch. We must demand better of the police, admit that the problem is far too great to be solved internally, and see the police for what they have become, a gang network that only exists to serve and protect each other. The pro-establishment narrative comes from unheard. While stories concerning the horrible acts of police officers toward women are disgusting, the size of a necessary police force in the UK is simply too large for such behavior to be completely eradicated. The concept is similar to the impossibility of ever fully getting rid of COVID. Though things can and must still be done to limit the issue, we must be realistic and acknowledge that, unfortunately, similar events occur in all corners of society. And no matter how hard we try, there will always be criminals around. Our final story, 15 are dead in a bus collision in Manitoba, Canada. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Reuters, The New York Times, and CNN. 15 people have been confirmed dead after a bus carrying senior citizens and a semi-truck collided in the western Canadian province of Manitoba on Thursday, with 10 others taken to the hospital with injuries. The crash occurred near the town of Carberry, where the 25 bus passengers were on their way to a casino with witnesses describing massive fires coming from the wreckage of the bus. Most of the passengers were senior citizens. The bus was traveling southbound on the Trans-Canada Highway when the eastbound truck collided with it at an intersection shortly before noon local time. Both drivers are alive and being treated for their injuries at a hospital, with police declining to speculate on responsibility for the crash. At a news conference, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer said that Manitoba has never had an accident of this scale. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was one of many political leaders to express condolences, saying the event was incredibly tragic. The RCMP is preparing for an investigation into the crash, which bears similarities to the 2018 crash between a semi-trailer and a bus carrying a youth hockey team in the neighboring province of Saskatchewan that claimed the lives of 16. Police have said they are connecting with investigators in Saskatchewan for their assistance on this case. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from CBC. A tragic trucking accident has once again struck Western Canada, a few short years after the tragedy in Saskatchewan. Thankfully, the lessons learned then can be applied today to help make sure authorities get it right, from identifying the victims to reconstructing the collision and supporting the families of those that lost loved ones. Every aspect of this process 
will be thorough and victim-centric. And narrative B comes from CTV Winnipeg. It's easy to immediately pin the blame on the truckers in these cases, but there are systematic failings in the trucking industry that ensure that these tragic accidents will continue to happen. Many unscrupulous companies take advantage of precarious labor and improperly train their drivers, cutting corners at every opportunity. While it's unknown what caused this incident, Canada must continue reforming its trucking industry. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, June 17th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.